So let's just recognize the exceptional nature of this moment and the discussion that we're having today. Duly recognized, sir. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with oh, you. Oh, they're everywhere. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. In Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's uh surprise surprise another busy news day, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, uh, the volcano it, it never ends. It never ends. We got a lot to try to get through here today before we well, there were hearings. Uh, I mentioned this yesterday. Hearings in the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, on uh, Tuesday on the authority granted to the president of the United States by the U.S. Congress to launch war and specifically to launch a nuclear attack anywhere, anytime, without needing the approval of anyone and without the ability for anybody to prevent him from doing so if he so wishes. The U.S. is the only nuclear-armed power that grants such sole decision-making power in just one person. And since that person now happens to be a man by the name of Donald J. Trump, a few folks in Congress, uh, both Democratic and Republicans, have some worries about that authority that he has been granted. The, uh, the hearing that was held was chaired by Republican Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee. It included discussion of legislation that might prevent a president a rogue president or otherwise, not naming any names here, uh, of launching a nuclear first strike against another country, say North Korea. That legislation uh, might stop someone, uh, anyone, any president uh, in a fit of Twitter peak from deciding to attack that way. Um, it was the first such congressional examination of that presidential authority since 1976. And so we will be joined in a bit by a longtime nuclear policy expert to find out if, uh, well, should we feel any better or worse following that hearing on Tuesday in the U.S. Senate. But before things get too dark here, uh, let's uh, let's start with a bit of encouraging news. 
How's that? <laughs> that sounds fantastic. At least for Democrats. <laughs> a uh, As uh, Oklahoma's Tulsa World reports, one year ago, Democrats threw $200,000 and a first-tier candidate at Oklahoma State Senate District 37 trying to unseat incumbent Republican Dan Newberry. But they lost the uh, very conservative West Tulsa County District by 15 percentage points. This year, however, with Newberry leaving the Senate, Democrats entered a lightly funded, little known 26 year old lesbian in the race. And at a special election on Tuesday, she won. Awesome. By 31 votes. Allison Eichley Freeman's victory uh, Tuesday over Republican Brian O'Hara continued a string of Democratic special election upsets. It gives Democrats three special election victories in predominantly Republican districts in the Tulsa area in the past two, two years, including two so far this year. Again, this is supposedly deep red Republican Oklahoma. Unofficial results showed that uh, Eichley Freeman had uh, just, uh, let's see, 2,234 votes over 2,203 for O'Hara, so just 31 votes separating them. What is it you always say? Uh, what do I always say? Every vote matters. Every vote matters, Those or at 31 least it person. should. Yeah. Yep. Uh, according to pre-election uh, Ethics Commission reports filed last week by the candidates, Eichley Friedman had raised... Uh, about $23,000, all from individuals to uh, to mount this challenge. And O'Hara, the Republican challenger, had raised three times that amount, almost $70,000, about which 30, 000, uh, of, of, of about which 30% came from right-wing political action committees. So she got out there. She decided to run. To run. She raised all her money, not from big corporate PACs, uh, or even, you know, uh, Democratic packs, but from actual, you know, human beings, and she won. She had targeted, apparently, uh, uh, voters door-to-door. Uh, -door. She said, uh, when we were knocking on doors, so many people said, thank you, we didn't know there was an election. Oh, wow. The Democratic wins uh, have come, the uh, two, or actually, uh, I guess the last uh, three there in Oklahoma have come since Anna Langthorne became the Oklahoma Democratic Party chairwoman. She is 24 years old and she became the youngest person currently leading a state Democratic Party and maybe the youngest ever. She says she really did not want to become Oklahoma Democratic Party chairwoman, but none of the people she did want in that position would run. So she did and she won. So Go you got girls, a 20, dang. right? <laughs> 24-year-old uh, leading the Democratic Party in Oklahoma, a 26-year-old lesbian wins for the uh, state Senate. Uh, just incredible. Um, so time to step up, people. Give a listen to to uh, to yesterday's broadcast. If you didn't hear it, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. My interview with Ross Morales Riquetto of Run for Something. Uh, give a listen to that if you need inspiration or just stop by runforsomething.net's website. Uh, as they say there, don't march, don't just march, run. Uh, you can win this year if you decide to run, even in so-called red jurisdictions like Oklahoma, which, by the way, went to Donald Trump 
in November of 2016 by 36 points. So when they tell you, oh, you can't win this, you can't win this, that, don't do this, you can't run in that, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. Get out there and start knocking on doors. Uh, Okay, meanwhile, uh, following up on a story that we covered as breaking news yesterday, which still has not received the attention from the media or lawmakers that in a sane world it would deserve... Uh, do, you, do you suppose there might be any more attention given to that mass shooting on Tuesday that killed five people and wounded 10 others and targeted an elementary school in Northern California? Had that very same attack been carried out in exactly the same way by a guy who was associated with, you know, the Islamic State or ISIS somehow? Instead of just being another domestic terror attack by a white guy, you think it might have gotten more uh, attention on cable news had that been the case? Had the exact same attack been associated with Muslim extremists? Cable news would would still likely be going wall-to-wall with coverage of that, I suspect. The president would be announcing uh, new immigration policies. It'd be the topic of conversation in the U.S. Congress, etc., etc. But but the shooter's name, as we now know, was not Mohammed or Sadiq. It was just Kevin. So, you know... We can all move on to other things now, and the uh, Republican lawmakers who pretend to be concerned about national security and the safety of Americans after uh, after an act of terror carried out by a Muslim extremist, they don't actually have to, to do anything. They don't actually have to take any action now that might risk upsetting the tens of millions of dollars of support that they count on, the bribery, really, that they received from the uh, terrorist-enabling National Rifle Association, the NRA. They don't have to do anything about it. We can just move on. Because, you know, it was just a white guy, no real threat. Today, the AP reports that the wife of uh, the gunman who went on that shooting rampage in Northern California, uh, in that Northern California town, was found dead inside their home. Why did it take so long? Uh, Well, investigators discovered the body of Kevin Jensen Neal's wife under the floorboards at their home. Oh, my. Yeah. Raising the death toll from that attack now to five. They believe that her slang was the start of the rampage, according to Tehama County Assistant Sheriff Phil Johnston. The uh, gunman shot and killed four other people, wounded 10 at seven different locations around this rural community of Rancho Tehama Reserve, a rural community represented, by the way, in Congress and in state government out here in California by Republicans. Police said surveillance video shows that uh, he was uh, the shooter was unsuccessfully trying to enter a nearby elementary school after quick thinking staff members had locked the doors and barricaded themselves inside when they heard gunshots. Johnston said the gunman spent about six minutes shooting into the Rancho Tehama Elementary School before driving off to continue shooting elsewhere. Johnston said one student was shot but is expected to survive. What would likely have turned, however, into another Sandy Hook massacre was very luckily avoided by the quick action taken to lock down that elementary school. At the time of the attack, the gunman was out on bail, we now know, after being charged with stabbing a neighbor. Others had complained about him firing hundreds of rounds from his house, and the assistant sheriff acknowledged that officers had visited the home. Somehow he was able to legally purchase... 
a semi-automatic rifle and two handguns that he was able to use to shoot 14 people, including at that elementary school before he died in the shootout with police. The weapons, according to officials, were legally purchased, were still in the gunman's possession, despite his long criminal record, his anger management issues, and despite recent police visits to his house on domestic violence calls. Something is wrong in this country. Uh, his many contacts with authorities raised questions of why he was out of uh, out of custody and able to go on that 45 minute rampage. Two of his neighbors were killed in an apparent act of revenge before the shooter then went looking for random victims. The gunman's sister said he had, quote, no business owning firearms. He was facing charges of assaulting uh, one of the uh, feuding neighbors in January. So he was facing charges. He had uh, a, a restraining order against him that the neighbor had filed. The assistant sheriff, Johnston, however, did not comment on the shooter's access to firearms when he was asked about it. He, he did confirm that the gunman was charged with assault in January and had a restraining order placed against him. But uh, no comment on while he, why he was able to, uh, to keep his guns. That's where we are in this country. And by the way, uh, some have been saying he, he clearly had some, he had anger issues. Some have said he had uh, mental issues throughout his life. Don't forget that the Republicans earlier this year in really the, the only substantive legislation that they have passed and that Donald Trump has signed was allowing uh, people like this shooter the white guy named Kevin up in Northern California uh, to keep people with uh, mental health issues uh, to assure that they would be able to buy weapons, that even if a court of law had determined that they were uh, so mentally unfit that they could not manage their own finances, that they would still be able to purchase, well, all the weapons they want for all the rampages they want. Let me take a quick break here and we will come back with uh, some Roy Moore news before we then get to nuclear annihilation. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Yeah, back to Sweet Home Alabama. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman. 
from Bradblog.com. President Donald Trump kept uncharacteristically silent and out of the fight, as AP described it, as national Republicans called ever more insistently for Roy Moore to abandon his Alabama campaign for the U.S. Senate. And party officials debated options that none of them liked. Far from surrendering, however, Moore's camp is fighting back today against allegations of sexual impropriety with teenage girls uh, as young as 14 years old when he was a district attorney in his 30s. Trump, who himself withstood allegations of sexual assault weeks before his own election, ducked questions about the Alabama race now that he's back in the U.S. from his Asia trip and whether he would uh, whether he would join GOP congressional leaders in urging Moore to step aside in the race. Moore's would-be colleagues threatened to expel him in the U.S. Senate should he win. And the Republican National Committee and National Republican Senatorial Committee have finally pulled their support from Roy Moore. National Republican Senatorial Committee did a couple of days ago, but it wasn't until just the past day or so that the RNC finally at least says they're pulling out of supporting Roy Moore down in Alabama. Trump, AP notes, was seen as the best hope for pushing a fellow political rebel from the race. I got to tell you, if Donald Trump is your best hope for anything, you're probably in a very bad position. That's all I'm saying here. <laughs> yeah, but that's where we are. That is where we are. Behind the scenes, aides describe Trump as vexed by the Moore issue. At any rate, he might make an uncomfortable critic. The allegations against the bombastic former judge in uh, Alabama echoed Trump's own political problems when he was accused before the 2016 election of more than a dozen instances of sexual harassment. So, yeah, uh, not surprising that he doesn't want to want to step into discuss that can this of matter worms. much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Republican allies of the administration expressed concern, however, about Trump's silence warning that more will be in the news for weeks, as will the president's refusal to weigh in on the matter uh, in the lead up the next several weeks before the December 12 election. Well, uh, yeah, it is going to uh, cause nothing but problems for Donald Trump, I suspect, and of course for Senate Republicans. Um, at least one person, uh, however, in the uh, in Alabama, uh <laughs> says they are receiving a call, a robocall, uh, seeking damaging information about Roy Moore. Sounds to me like a dirty trick at this point. Uh, the call claims to be from a Washington Post reporter, a robocall from Washington Post offering five to $7,000 for damaging remarks about Roy Moore and says that while they will pay for the information, they won't investigate the claims. They'll just report them in the paper. Uh, take a listen. Uh, here's, the, here's that call. Hi, this is Lenny Bernstein. I'm a reporter for the Washington Post. I'm calling to find out if anyone at this address is a female between the ages of 54 to 57 years old willing to make damaging remarks about candidate Roy Moore for a reward of between $5,000 to $7,000. <laughs> we will not be fully investigating these claims. However, we will need a written report. I can be reached by email, albernstein at washingtonpost.com. Thank you. Yeah, okay. So that was the 
uh, fake robocall that is apparently being sent to voters in uh, in in Alabama. Can at I just this point. can I just yeah, say yeah. what a bad accent that is? You don't care for that? No, uh, well, that it's fake just, New it's, York it's accent. It's totally fake. <laughs> the uh, this is it's kind of amazing. Uh, so the Washington Post. The executive editor there says they have nothing to do with this call. Uh, they put out a statement. The Post has just learned that at least one person in Alabama has received a call from someone falsely claiming to be from the Washington Post. The call's description of our reporting methods bears no relationship to reality. We are shocked and appalled that anyone would stoop to this level to discredit real journalism. You know, basically asking for women, uh, you know, who might have been between the ages of whatever it was uh, now, 54 to 47. To get paid five to seven thousand dollars to make allegations that the that the Washington Post fake call says they will not investigate. Yeah, right. But they will report on (laughs) they will publish them anyway. We will report them nonetheless in the paper. Uh, Sure. I guess they think that, uh, that people some people fall may fall for this. Uh, that call, and we don't know how many uh, have actually received it, uh, even made its way onto that. It, by the way, that email address they give, uh, this uh, media have uh, who was first reported on WKRG, the CBS affiliate, they emailed that address. It came back as not working, as, as uh, un- right. a fake address, Because basically. it's fake. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, that call even made its way onto uh, cable TV as if it was a real call from The Washington Post, at least uh, from Trenton Garman, who's the lawyer representing Roy Moore. He told MSNBC's Ali Velshi and Stephanie Rule that robocalls are now even being made, asking for people to come forward against Roy. And we plan on even probably getting into some depositions related to that. You'll recall that we noted yesterday that Moore and his wife had threatened to sue The Washington Post for their reporting that was sourced by some 30 people all on the record. And Moore's wife was posting on Facebook pages that they had evidence to show that thousands of dollars were being paid to people making these claims against uh, Roy Moore. Sounds like these fake calls may be what they were referring to, but who knows? Uh, Moore's uh, attorney Garmin has been uh, absolutely beclowning himself in the media over the past few days. Uh, he had uh, there was this exchange uh, on MSNBC where he tried to suggest that Ali Velshi uh, that uh, he might understand these claims about uh, older men and younger Child women. marriage. Yeah. Based on his. Uh, he's his Canadian. Background. Yes, he's Canadian. So, <laughs> nope. they were they were equally unsure what the hell he was talking he about. Had, this is uh, Roy Moore's uh, uh, attorney. Garmin uh, also said this uh, to Don Lemon. Do we have that? Clip? That specifically at the top of the show was that the statute of limitations is run out. So there will be no judge and jury. There will be no process. The yeah. process is that a woman okay. has come forward. I hear you on the record. But hey, Hey, Don, lemon squeeze, you keep it easy. Here's the thing, It's man, just lemon. My mom run, didn't name me. Hold so on. My I, mom didn't name me Don Lemon. Keep it easy squeezy. It's just Don Lemon. Go on. I got you, man. So mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm saying, Don, is... That is that Roy man. Moore's attorney. Yes. Goes on CNN and calls him Don Lemon. And insults squeezy, the anchor. Squeezy, take it easy. What did he think Jesus was going to happen? Jesus Christ. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know what, uh, Roy Moore, you may need a, you may want to get a better lawyer. Just saying. 
But I have to hand it to uh, the king, the king of talk radio. He is the king of talk radio for a reason. Rush Limbaugh on Tuesday. The the reason that he came up with uh, to defend Roy Moore is kind of extraordinary. He criticized Republicans for distancing themselves from him after allegations that Roy Moore was a child molester while serving as a district attorney in the late 70s and 80s. Limbaugh, who is a genius when it comes to political propaganda, uh, he appears to come up with an ingenious novel defense for the accused child molester on his show on Tuesday. No matter what the real stories are here and no matter what the evidence is, these guys, these people on the Republican side are making it clear they're going to prevent this guy from ever being seated in the United States Senate. Did you know that before 1992, when a lot of this was going on, that Judge Moore was a Democrat? <laughs> so, there you, you didn't go. know that? There you how go. About, how yeah. about all these people? I got well, to get to a break here. But yes, Rush Limbaugh was out there making the argument that, you know what, this is, of course, uh, it's not uh, so bad because uh, we should expect it. He was a Democrat. That what he's going with that, Des. That's yeah, his, as if that somehow makes it okay. He uh, <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's by the way, it's unclear that he was actually a Democrat at this time. Uh, he did switch. He was at one point a Democrat, and then he switched to become a Republican uh, after losing elections while running as a Democrat. Once he became a Republican, however, he started to win. In any event, Rush Limbaugh, impressive stuff. Well done. It's uh, okay that he was a child molester, I guess, because he was a Democrat at the time. So go out and vote for him to join the U.S. Senate today. Brilliant. Speaking of the U.S. Senate, some very serious news uh, on Tuesday. We'll cover that after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last week, AP reported that Pope Francis is now seeking to defuse rising nuclear tensions on the Korean Peninsula, announcing a Vatican conference that will bring together 11 Nobel Peace Prize winners, United Nations and NATO officials and representatives from a handful of countries that have the bomb. For some analysts, Francis's address at the gathering uh, will provide a welcome break in the heated war of words between U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, as Trump has just completed his first trip to Asia as president. The Vatican hopes the conference will do more by further discrediting 
the Cold War era idea that atomic weapons serve a useful purpose for deterrence and global security. Conference organizer and top papal advisor Monsignor Silvano Tomasi said, I think it's very important to alert public opinion that the presence in the world of thousands of atomic bombs doesn't guarantee the security of anyone. The conference is the first major international gathering since 122 countries approved a new U.N. treaty in July calling for the complete elimination of nuclear weapons. Well, that's nice. That's good news. However, the uh, U.S. nor none of the nuclear powers in the world or any NATO members signed on to that agreement. Meanwhile, back here at home, worries continue, at least for many of us, which now seem to include many in the U.S. Congress, about the possible decision to use U.S. nuclear weapons, a a decision that, yes, rests in the hands of one single, arguably unstable man who happens now to be the president of the United States. During last year's campaign, Hillary Clinton attempted to sound a warning with campaign ads featuring former nuclear missile launch officer Bruce Blair. I spent many years as a nuclear missile launch officer. If the president gave the order we had to launch the missiles, that would be it. I prayed that call would never come. Self-control may be all that keeps these missiles from firing. I would bomb the out of them. I want to be unpredictable. I love war. The thought of Donald Trump with nuclear weapons scares me to death. It should scare everyone. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. That was uh, the campaign ad last year that did not seem to do the trick, did not seem to uh, concern Americans, apparently enough, or at least enough Americans, to keep Donald Trump out of office. Uh, That same former nuclear missile launch officer, Bruce Blair, wrote at Washington Post that no one can stop Donald Trump from ordering a preemptive nuclear strike if he so chooses. Under the current nuclear strike protocol, wrote Blair, President Trump can consult any and all or none of his national security advisors and no one can legally countermand his order. If he gave the green light using his nuclear codes, a launch order the length of a tweet would be transmitted and carried out within a few minutes. There would be no recalling missiles fired from silos and submarines, he warned. In response to all of this, for the first time in 41 years, U.S. lawmakers held a hearing in the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Tuesday to investigate that authority that the president of the United States has. The committee, chaired by outgoing Senate Republican Bob Corker of Tennessee, heard testimony from a retired head of strategic command, a former acting deputy secretary for defense policy, and a professor at Duke University. In announcing the hearing last week, Corker had said in a statement, quote, a number of members both on and off our committee have raised questions about the authorities of the legislative and executive branches with respect to war making, the use of nuclear weapons, and conducting foreign policy overall. He said this continues a series of hearings to examine those issues and will be the first time since 1976 that this committee or our House counterparts have looked specifically at the authority and process for using nuclear weapons. 
This discussion, he said, is long overdue. Well, it is indeed. During the hearing, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut had this to say. We are concerned that the president of the United States is so unstable, is so volatile, has a decision-making process that is so quixotic that he might order a nuclear weapons strike that is wildly out of step with U.S. national security interests. So let's just recognize the exceptional nature of this moment and the discussion that we're having today. During that discussion, the assembled experts seemed to reiterate what longtime nuclear weapons analyst Stephen Schwartz told us on this program several weeks ago. Basically, that if Donald Trump decided for pretty much any reason he wanted to, to launch nuclear weapons, there would be little to stop him from doing so, barring a very long chain of immediate resignations of military leadership, a mutiny of sorts, and even then that wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be enough to stop a president determined to give the launch orders. There was at least one chilling moment during the hearing cited by uh, in David Korn's coverage over at Mother Jones, where Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson, after asking about the military's constraint to only follow legal constitutional orders, including Somehow, a legal test of proportionality, which somehow those folks are expected to make in potentially a matter of minutes. Uh, During that conversation, witness uh, General C. Robert Kaler, a former commander of the U.S. Strategic Command, said that such an illegal order from the commander in chief could be disobeyed. But that only led to another problem. Here's a portion of that chilling questioning between Senator Johnson and um, and uh, General uh, Kaler. And let's say you, you get a presidential order to launch. You believe that is your responsibility. You have the authority to yes. say this is not legal because we have not followed the steps. We haven't gone through the process. I would have said I have a question about this and I would have uh, I would have said I'm not ready to proceed. And then what happens? Well, I, you know, as I say, I don't know uh, exactly. <laughs> you don't know. No, fortunately, we've never. These are all hypothetical scenarios. I mean, they're real in terms of we're, our. We're holding our, hearing on this, so they're all exactly. Um, this is the human factor in our system. The human factor in our system. That human factor now allows one man, Donald J. Trump, to blow up the world if he so wishes. Joining us to discuss that human factor and uh, much more related to this old nightmare that has become new again is Stephen Schwartz. Once again, he is a nuclear weapons policy analyst and uh, former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Those are the uh, keepers of the infamous atomic clock, the analogous warning to the world of how close we may be at any given time to annihilation of planet Earth. He's also former editor of the Non-Proliferation Review and current adjunct professor at the Middle- Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey. Stephen Schwartz, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be back. I uh, I was only able to see portions of that uh, hearing yesterday from what I saw and what I read about it. 
it didn't make me feel any better. I believe you were able to watch the whole thing. What did you take away from that hearing with those uh, three experts? And and is there any reason to feel better coming out of the hearing than we did uh, before going in, Stephen? Um, well, I was I was underwhelmed. Um, I was hoping that the uh, senators and the witnesses would delve into this issue in more detail than they apparently felt comfortable doing. Um, I hope that this is very much the beginning of a process uh, and not the end, but after a fair amount of buildup and some expectation on the part of what Senator Corker had said about his concerns about President Trump, mm-hmm. uh, this, this event, for me at least, and for some of my colleagues, um, kind of fizzled. I mean, part of the problem is that uh, although you had excellent turnout, you know, most Senate hearings or even House hearings, you look at, you know, there's only a handful of senators who ever show up. I think almost most members of the committee were there. They didn't stay the whole time, but most of them were there uh, for at least some portion of it, which was impressive, uh, and a number of senators did ask uh, questions. But the witnesses they got, um, as, as uh, competent and expert as they were, did not see any particular problem with the status quo. In fact, they all warned, uh, to one degree or another, that changes to it could actually complicate our ability to use nuclear weapons uh, if and when we wanted to, uh, which is actually sort of, of course, the purpose of the uh, of of the hearing. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you have uh, a trio of people who know more about the issue than you do as a senator, telling you that uh, sure there's some concerns, but it's nothing that we can't already handle, uh, it's very difficult for uh, you know senators who are not well versed in this issue. Of course, again, this is the mm-hmm. first hearing on the subject in 41 years uh, to try to uh, probe further. But I hope that uh, there will be. Uh, future hearings and and discussions about this, so that we can get into uh, into more detail. It's it, it, it's it seems sort of odd that these three witnesses seem to be uh, saying that the status quo is fine as is, and yet they're talking about uh, in that you know in that clip we played. Well, what happens? Sure, uh, maybe uh, a military leader can say no to an order from the commander in chief because they believe it's unlawful or unconstitutional. But then what happens next? They didn't seem to have any good answer for that. I'm not sure how. Uh, was there anybody? Uh, was there anybody or anything that did not defend this status quo that I think is quite troubling? Well, Senator Markey, uh, who of course has this uh, piece of pending legislation that would restrict the president's authority to use nuclear weapons first, without the United States actually being attacked, mm-hmm. uh, he was probably the most. Uh, uh, critical Senator Corker, you know, raised some questions. There were a few other Democrats and even a couple of Republicans that that had some concerns, but nothing that rose to the level of, you know, we have to do something about this now. The current situation is um, is is untenable, which is, uh, you know, unfortunate. I mean, the reality of the situation is, and I didn't go into it in that much detail, is that you're putting enormous power in the hands of one person. Yeah. Uh, and if you're, you know, in the old days, we were talking about the Soviet Union, now Russia, but the same thing more or less applies to North Korea. It takes about 30 minutes or so for a nuclear weapon on a missile to reach the United States when it's launched from overseas. That's the window of time in which you have to make a decision, if you're going to make a decision, mm-hmm. to use nuclear weapons under attack before the weapon might explode and possibly either kill you or cripple your ability to respond either by destroying your weapons or destroying your ability to issue an order to use the weapons. Now, within that 30-minute period of time, though, 
some of it's eaten up by dis- determining whether or not this is an actual attack or whether it's a false alarm. And then there's this conference that they talked about yesterday where if it's determined that it's a real attack, the president and his advisors would get together either in person or virtually and talk about it and make a decision. And so the president really only has maybe at most 15 minutes and uh, perhaps as little as 5 or 10 to decide whether or not to launch a counter-response. Of course, if if the other alternative occurs, which is the one that I think most people are concerned about, but probably isn't the most realistic threat, and that's where President Trump wakes up one day or wakes up from sleeping or, you know, has a particularly bad uh, tweet or is watching something on Fox and Friends and decides that's it, I've had it, I want to, you know, destroy North Korea or anything else for that matter, and just gets on the phone with the Pentagon and says, I want you to do this, then there is no conference at all. It's just simply the president deciding on his own that he wants to make, uh, that he's making this call. And although it was brought up during the hearing that, uh, although there are people who would normally be involved in any sort of decision about this, apart from one that the president makes on his own, none of those people have the legal authority to countermand a presidential decision. So if, you know, they can say, like General Keeler said, well, I would raise an objection to it, but if the president decides he wants to do it, yeah. he has to. The general has to stand down. Everybody has to stand, and everybody in the chain of command works for the president and can be fired if he doesn't like their order. It would the only way. I think we brought this up the last time. The mm-hmm. only way that an order would not be carried out is if there were mass insubordination. And the problem with that is that the people down at the what we call the operators, the young right. men and women uh, in the missile silos, in the submarines, and the bombers. Are, and particularly in the submarines, are disconnected from the world, they would have no way of knowing, really, whether the president was of sound mind and body when he made that decision or what necessarily is going on in the world that prompted it. And they are training constantly, every week, every day, to use these weapons and to use them quickly. They're trained not to think about it. So to expect them to suddenly decide, based on intuition or whatever, that this just doesn't feel right is asking a lot for a system that completely expects the opposite. It's also uh, somewhat confusing to me how uh, any of these military people, whether it's a top military leader or someone uh, you know expected to actually turn the key to launch those missiles, how, how they would be able to make that determination of what is an unlawful or unconstitutional order, uh, you know, then... Vice President uh, Dick Cheney said in 2008 that the president could launch a, uh, quote, could launch a kind of devastating attack the world's never seen. He doesn't have to check with anybody. He doesn't have to call the Congress. He doesn't have to check with the courts. Richard Nixon told reporters uh, in his darkest hours, as the plowshare funds note, um, in his darkest hours as president, he Uh, When he was threatened by impeachment and drinking heavily, he said, quote, I can go into my office and pick up the telephone and in 25 minutes, 70 million people will be dead. It strikes me that we're, you know, citing Richard Nixon here and Dick Cheney saying these things. And I feel more confident in Dick Cheney and Richard Nixon to do the right thing than I do Donald Trump. So if an illegal or unconstitutional order was given here. Yes, the military, I guess, military personnel have the legal authority to reject such an order, but how how would they know in such a circumstance that the order is either unlawful or unconstitutional? How 
How are they expected to make that determination? That, that came up yesterday, and it was a really interesting moment. Obviously, all of this stuff is incredibly highly classified. It's some of the most classified information the government maintains. And so mm-hmm. uh, the witnesses and the members of Congress were speaking mostly in generalities. But that question was asked of General Kaler, again, the former head of U.S. Strategic Command, which is ultimately responsible for all of our missiles, submarines, and bombers. And, again, keep in mind what I just said, that the president has a very limited window of time in order right. to make a decision. So he said, General Keller said, that we have pre-planned options available. And if the president chose one of those options, they've already been, I'm paraphrasing here, but they've already been vetted legally. And so there's already been a determination made by the military, you know, we're not privy to that conversation, Mm -hmm. and it might not hold up in the light of day, but they've already looked at the, whatever the targeting set was, and Mm -hmm. what the outcome would be in terms of numbers of people killed and injured and destruction and so forth, and made a legal determination that that pre-planned option is legal. And there are multiple options available. So when the president has to make this decision, either because he decides he wants to, or because he's faced with uh, an incoming attack and his military aide pulls out of the football, the briefcase that follows him around constantly, Mm -hmm. the presidential decision handbook, that handbook has within it, it's roughly 75 pages, and it has within it all of the pre-planned options that are available to the president. It's set up a bit like a menu of options, Mm -hmm. even with cartoons, because, again, there's very little time to make this decision. So there'll be a short description of the option, and then a sort of a pictogram of what that would entail, what sort of level of destruction that would cause. And the president sort of, you know, maybe Chinese menu style, goes down and say, well, I'll, let's do that one, that one that sounds good. Now, the president doesn't have to pick those options. The president could decide, you know what, I don't like these options. They aren't specific enough for what it is we're trying to do or what we need to do here. Maybe it's overkill. Maybe it's not enough, whatever it is. And the president can order up something special off the menu, as it were, in which case... Uh, they cannot launch immediately because they haven't figured out what that option is yet. So they have to go and assess, you know, mm-hmm. assess it and then retarget missiles and make certain determinations. All of this is incredibly highly choreographed for time for a whole lot of reasons, including that we don't want our own weapons to, to destroy our own weapons en route to target. Right. And so instead of something being carried out in a matter of minutes, it might take, you know, a matter of hours to implement something like that. In that case, if it's not a preplanned option, it wouldn't have been legally vetted, and then there could be some sort of discussion about whether or not that makes sense. But again, at the end of the day, if General Kaler or General Mattis or General Kelly or any other general is involved in this discussion, for the sake of argument, steps up and says, I don't, I don't think this is appropriate, I don't think this is right, I don't think this is legal, the president can say, well, Jim, John, Mad Dog, whatever, I understand that. I'm sorry. I disagree with you. Let's roll. And it happens. What, uh, Stephen Schwartz, what, what mechanism, I mean, given the fact that he can go out and, and choose these uh, pre-vetted options, as you, as you described them, from this menu, and if he chooses to do so, then there will be no one saying this is unlawful or unconstitutional presumably what mechanism uh, you you've you know been studying this now for so many years what mechanism should be in place to help avoid uh, the type of situation that we're now looking at what what would you like to see i mean the authority seems to have been given up 
uh, by Congress to the White House, to whoever is in the uh, Oval Office, to make this decision, um, notwithstanding the, uh, the Ed Markey legislation you mentioned. But what would you like to see in place to avoid this, this kind of a situation? Because as I understand it, there is no other nuclear power in the world where the launch authority is so concentrated in just one person. That's correct. Yeah, and again, you know, it may uh, the people who are, are responsible for this, you know, believe that it, you know, this this system works and that it worked during the Cold War, and they believe it made sense during the Cold War when we faced what they thought was the realistic possibility of a surprise attack from the Soviet Union that could destroy both our weapons and our command and control network, and utterly crippling our ability to respond. Mm-hmm. At which point, we're faced with a nightmare from their perspective, a nightmare scenario of either capitulate, surrender, or we'll annihilate you. Now, I don't think that's a particularly realistic scenario for a number of reasons that we really probably don't have time to go into, but that's the system that's carried over post-Cold War into what we have today. Um, I would say, you know, at a minimum, mm-hmm. I think we need to have more than one constitutional officer uh, entrusted with the power to make this decision. The president should have to have the concurrence of at least one other person uh, in the government. Not, you know, and, and I've got a colleague at Stanford University who's recommending that that person be the attorney general. Now we could say, well, maybe it should be the secretary of defense or mm-hmm. secretary of homeland security or something like that. But there should at least be one other person in the loop who can say, I agree with you or I disagree with you. And just like we have a two-man rule in the mm-hmm. missile silos right. and the submarines and the bombers, everywhere else in that system, you can't even work with nuclear weapons, let alone have the authority to launch them, unless you have at least one other person. And in the case of our ballistic missiles, it's actually four people agreeing that this is the right thing to do. But when you get to the very top of the chain of command, suddenly it's one person alone who has the authority and, and the only person to, to make that decision. So that's... That's one possible change. The other thing that would be useful is to work, I mean, in this current climate it's going to be hard, but uh, to work to reduce the level of alert status of nuclear weapons worldwide. We are, uh, we and Russia are the only two countries that maintain large numbers of nuclear weapons on alert, ready to fly 24-7. That puts enormous stress on the system because it then requires you to launch, to use, either use those weapons or lose them if you're under attack. If we can reduce the levels, the alert levels verifiably on multiple sides, that gives everybody much more time to make what could be, you know, a life-ending, a world-ending uh, decision. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, you'll get better results as, uh, you know, out of that. But this is the kind of stuff that could have been discussed uh, and hopefully will be discussed, you know, at future hearings, but it wasn't discussed yesterday. Has the uh, has the Congress gone? Uh, well, I was going to say either too far, too far, or a wall, depending on how you look at it. When it comes to uh, the War Powers Act, I was happy to see. I don't think I have time to play the clip, but I was happy to see Senator Tim Kaine uh, talking uh, yesterday. I think it was after the uh, after the hearing, uh, not only about his concerns uh, regarding the president's use of nuclear weapons, and that would apply to anyone who was in the White House. Uh, he was specifically concerned, of course, about uh, Donald Trump, but also the idea that, um, you know, we, we've given the okay, we've given the go-ahead to presidents to launch preemptive wars. And he cited, I was very happy to see, 
that f- finally someone there cited, uh, you know, his attack on Syria that was done with apparently no authority whatsoever. Um, the War Powers Act you know, gives the president the ability to uh, respond to imminent threats, but that idea of an imminent threat has been stretched seemingly beyond reason. Um is is it wise or is it not wise? I mean, do we have a good policy here as far as making uh, allowing the president to make this decision rather than Congress, which the Constitution says, you know, only Congress has that war making authority. Uh, right. So I guess the question that I'm saying is, have we gone too far? Have we given the president just too much authority? Should Congress take that back as you see it? Uh, I, I think it's a worthy discussion. I, I'd certainly like to see something like that. I mean, given where we are, again, politically, I, that would be you know, an even more difficult conversation than the one General Kaler was referring to yesterday's mm. um, hearing. But uh, you know, one, one way of dealing with this is to change U.S. nuclear policy. And in fact, uh, Congressman Adam Smith, who's the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee uh, from the state of Washington, introduced a bill just today, I believe, that, that would make it the policy of the, of the United States not to use nuclear weapons first. We've always reserved the right to use nuclear weapons first. Obviously, we're the only country in the world that's ever used nuclear weapons, and hopefully we'll be the last to use them. But, uh, and, and there are other, other states have, over time, the Soviet Union during the Cold War had a no first use pledge. But this would make it sort of binding legislatively, and what that would mean is that the United States would only use nuclear weapons in response to being attacked under certain circumstances, whether it's with nuclear weapons or some other weapon of mass destruction or, you know, possibly a massive terrorist attack. I, I, haven't, I haven't looked at the details of the bill, but it would be something mm-hmm. like that, as opposed to basically giving ourselves carte blanche to use nuclear weapons whenever and wherever we wanted, you know, even in response to a conventional attack or maybe in, the, in response to no attack at all. I mean, one thing that really didn't... Uh, that got alighted at yesterday's hearing is what what the president is apparently interested in doing, and certainly what his national security advisor, General McMaster, is interested in doing, is a preventive attack on North Korea. Now, people get preventive and preemptive confused. We talk about Iraq being a preemptive war. Mm-hmm. It actually wasn't. Preemptive and preventive are two very different things. A preemption is legally understood, and it's a legally understood and valid concept that is sanctioned under international law, and that is if you are under imminent threat of being attacked, you see that an attack is coming your way, whether it's on a missile or a plane or something like that, you have the right to defend yourself, okay? But there has to be an imminent threat in existence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Preventive war, which is what we did in Iraq and what we're now thinking about apparently with regard to North Korea, is you go to war even though there is no imminent threat, on the justification that if you take care of that potential threat in the future now, it will not be as big of a problem as it would be if you wait until it's actually becoming an imminent threat. Mm-hmm. That is not legal under international law. And uh, it would have been useful to have more conversation about that at the hearing. So a no first use of nuclear weapons mm-hmm. bill, should it ever become U.S. policy, would mean that we could not carry out such an attack with nuclear weapons. We could still do that conventionally, you know, if Congress authorized it and so forth, if, you know, that falls under the War Powers Act, but uh, you wouldn't be able to use nuclear weapons for that. So to the degree that we would reduce nuclear dangers, that would be another way of, of addressing that without necessarily taking away 
presidential authority. You pass a law that mm-hmm. would simply just change what the president can do. Of course, all of that requires actual action more than just hearings. From the uh, U.S. Congress, I guess we should be happy that we're even having hearings. As we said, this is the first time in four decades that this issue has even been discussed. Uh, Stephen Schwartz, I've got just a few seconds, so very quickly, if it's possible. Did anything happen on Donald Trump's uh, Asia tour that made you feel either better or worse, more worried about the situation with North Korea one way or another now that he's back? Uh, well, he didn't make it to the DMZ, so we were spared, you know, potential problems there. Uh, I, I think maybe one thing that was concerning is that, you know, it's just, it's so absurd. The man, you know, presents himself as this pillar of strength and a great deal maker, but all you have to do is flatter him. You know, you have to be Shinzo Abe and give him a hat that says making alliance great again, or you have to be uh, President uh, Xi Jinping and, and, you know, fed him at the Forbidden City and have pictures there. And suddenly, you know, all of this criticism that he has about these people flies out the window and it's all they're about, you know, they're being nice to me. It's so wonderful. So, uh, you know, where is, where is American strength? Where is, where is resolve? Where is, you know, dealing with all the problems that he had, had identified, not all of which I agree with, but he's identified, mm-hmm. they're all gone because these people are suddenly, you know, being nice to him and flattering him. Uh, that is not the way to run foreign policy. In his tweet the other day about how, you know, gee, I hope I'll be friends with Kim Jong-un one day. Yes. That's not the goal of U.S. foreign policy. Yes. The goal of U.S. foreign policy is to, is to uh, project uh, the, the, the goals, uh, the diplomatic and, uh, uh, you know, goals of, of the United States in order to make the world uh, a free or more democratic place, and I didn't see anything on this trip, you know, whether it was glad-handing with uh, Duterte in the Philippines or, you know, Xi in China or anything mm-hmm. else where the president was standing up for American values. So that was unfortunate. Uh, indeed. Stephen Schwartz, uh, nuclear weapons policy analyst, uh, I hope friend of the broadcast because we may be bothering you more often. I hope you will uh, follow him uh, on the Twitters. Uh, he's got a great feed at atomic analyst Stephen. it's always uh both uh, great and terrible to talk to you thanks so much for joining <laughs> us today my 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 displeasure Brad. <laughs> very good thank you sir uh yeah uh mm. okay well at least you know what something's happening in the u.s senate they're at least talking about it in the u.s senate hey that's an improvement although bob corker is going to be leaving the u.s senate next year so easy for him to do I guess. Uh, Hopefully the Republicans will continue discussing this issue. Uh, Hopefully Democrats will, too, because they, you know, they they were on board, uh, giving the thumbs up to Donald Trump when he attacked Syria. So, you know, that's a sovereign nation. That's illegal. That was an illegal attack. And very few people are talking about it. But then again, that's where we are. But at least he hasn't uh, launched nukes yet. So there's that. All right. Got to get out. Thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer. And, of course, to Stephen Schwartz. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can, as ever, download it for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And I hope you'll find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters where you can find me as The Brad Blog. My thanks to all of those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.